Genesis chapter 44 this morning. I was actually hoping to read the first half of chapter 45 as well, but it just turned out to be too much material, and so I have to cut off the story at the end of chapter 44 for this morning. But to bring up to speed any who haven't been tracking along here with Genesis, in this last section of Genesis, it's all about this family of Jacob, who also is given the name Israel, who has 12 sons, and these 12 sons will be the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament church. Now, those sons hated their one brother, Joseph, because he was the father's favorite, and because he had dreams that he would be supreme over them. And so they, when he came out to visit them in the fields, they threw him into a pit, and then they sold him to the Ishmaelites who were headed down to Egypt, And the Ishmaelites took him and sold him in Egypt as a slave. And Joseph was enslaved in Egypt and went through various trials, but he was given by the Lord to interpret Pharaoh's dream, to know that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Pharaoh exalted Joseph and made him the second in command in Egypt. God was using this to preserve the church and the world from famine. But then the family of Jacob, those sons who had sold their brother and not told their father about it, their father thought Joseph was dead. Father Israel sent his sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And when they came down to Egypt, Joseph recognizing them and them not recognizing him, he accused them of being spies. And they, of course, said they were not spies. And he said, by this we'll know that you're not spies when you bring This other brother you told me about, Benjamin, when you bring him along with you and come back, then I'll know you're not spies. Until then, I'm going to keep Simeon in custody. So the brothers went home, and Father Jacob just would not let Benjamin go with them. He loved Benjamin so much. But finally, he sent them with Benjamin, and they came down. And in that last chapter we looked at, chapter 43, when they returned to Egypt with Benjamin... They were nervous, but things seemed to go very well. In fact, Joseph had them over for lunch at his house, and he dined with them. And they thought all was well now, and now they head off for home. And that's where we pick it up, at Genesis chapter 44, the word of God. They're just preparing to go home. Genesis 44, verse 1. And he commanded the steward, that's Joseph, unbeknownst to his brothers, He's the prime minister of Egypt. He commanded his steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks, and that would be his brothers who've come, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not far yet, and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks? And with which he indeed practices divination, you have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servant should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. 
How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces. But I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? 
And then Joseph can't restrain himself and reveals himself to his brothers, forgives them, and they weep over each other and hug that next time. But let's ask for the Lord's blessing, shall we? Bowing our heads. O Lord, our God, you have told us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Father, we pray then that you would equip us as your servants by your God-breathed Scriptures. Father, apart from your blessing, everything we do now comes to nothing. And so we humbly ask you, our living God, to speak through his living word so that our souls may live and that our lives may be filled with the life of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ Jesus, family reunions are something that we do in our culture, in our world. Some of you maybe have fond memories of a family reunion, or maybe you're planning for a family reunion, but if you've ever participated in one, then you know that, that family reunions only occur with, with a great deal of effort and with some self-sacrifice. You think about the person who plans the reunion, it's not an enviable job in my estimation, but to make all the communication and to secure a venue and all of that, there's self-sacrifice there, but even among all the participants in a family reunion, to, to give up time, to adjust one's schedule, to, to give up maybe vacation time, to gather, to be at the same place at the same time, it takes some sacrifice. But of course, the benefits are, are ordinarily quite wonderful. Family reunions are good, but the greatest family reunion is when those who are alienated those who were broken apart from each other come back together in repentance, in forgiveness, in love. If you've ever witnessed that, if you've ever been a part of that, that a relationship that had been estranged is repaired and there's reconciliation, you know that's, that's a wonderful and a glorious thing. But the truth is such reconciliation is a bit rare, isn't it? Because relationships are easy to break apart, and they're hard to put back together. And, and when someone's offended, if it's not dealt with, and as the years go by, the layers of ice accumulate, and it seems all the more difficult to break through. And that's what makes Genesis 44 and Genesis 45 so amazing, because here we are 22 years after this horrible sin of selling their brother into slavery, and now we come to a point, really into chapter 45, what we'll look at next time, but a point of glorious reconciliation. Judah and the brothers tear their clothes. They show solidarity with Benjamin. They come before Joseph in repentance. They lay down their lives, as it were, to save Benjamin in the heart of their father. And the next time we see Joseph and revealing himself to his brothers and telling them, God sent me here. Don't blame yourselves. He forgave them, and they, they weep over each other. And there's this marvelous, heart-warming reconciliation of this family. Only God can do this. It is the work of the Lord. And this morning, we want to look at this first part of it, God's work here in the brothers, and especially in Judah, where God so renews the heart of a murderer that he's willing to offer his life a sacrifice for his brother. Tonight, or this morning, I rather, let's look at the, the loving persistence of the Lord and then the transforming power of the Lord 
and then the chosen pathway of the Lord. First of all, God's loving persistence. He pursues this family to repentance. And then God's transforming power as Judah has become now a new man. And then thirdly, the Lord's chosen pathway. As we see that really here is revealed the outline of our Lord Jesus and the way he will take. Well, here comes the final test. For college students, high schoolers, you know, professors often, teachers give you quizzes and all these things. But there's, there's a final exam. And that's what we have here, the final exam. Jacob here and his sons have been, have been quite b- nervous here about Benjamin being taken down to, to Egypt. And there's been all this, this angst. But the sons came back with Benjamin and the steward treated them so well. And then he brought them to Joseph's house and they, they had a fine meal. And, and the chapter ends, chapter 43 ends saying they drank and were merry with Joseph. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Looks like things are going to work out. Next morning, they pack up. They're given grain. They exit the city. And they've got not only the grain for their families, they've got Simeon, who had been in jail all this time. He's with them. And they've got Benjamin, who Father Jacob was so worried about. They've got everything. And on top of that, now they are friends of the prime minister of Egypt. If they need anything else, it would seem. Things are better than they could have possibly expected. And then they see the dust cloud coming out of the city. The steward of Joseph riding hard after them with probably a bunch of guards. And as he comes to them, he accuses them of having taken the cup of divination. Now it's said that in cultures like this, that the cup of divination was a a cup that one would use, put some water in there. And a couple drops of oil on top and watch the swirl patterns and be able to supposedly discern the future. And the brothers had begun to think that, that Joseph was able to do certain things because when they had seated there at lunch the day before, they had been seated in their birth order. Who could have known their birth order perfectly for these, these 11 sons? And now they're accused of taking this cup of divination. Not that Joseph actually practiced divination or magic arts, but this was the ruse. And the brothers, of course, boldly protest their innocence. Why would we do that? We're trying to escape with our lives. We're not about to steal even the money we found in our sacks last time. We brought that money back. Here, look at our sacks. And the steward begins searching the sacks from the oldest to the youngest. So you think of it, they're ten sacks down now. The tenth sack he's had his arm in and still nothing comes up. And they're thinking, finally, let's get this over with. See, we told you so. And then he comes to Benjamin's sack and pulls out the cup. And the brothers are horrified. And they tear their clothes. And things have gone from the best they could possibly be to the worst they could possibly be. And they're brought back to Joseph. And Joseph says, what is this you've done to me? And Judah responds in verse 16, What shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And it might seem like he's saying, yes, here we are, the guilty ones who stole the cup. But that's certainly not what he's saying, because they know they didn't steal the cup. But as we've had indications in the previous chapters and all these tests Joseph is putting them through, they feel the hand of God. They don't know this man is their brother, but they know that God's doing something. What has God done to us, they say at points. And now they get it. 
We were unmerciful to Joseph as we sold him into slavery and he was crying out for mercy and we had no mercy and now God is having no mercy. He's selling us into the hand of the Egyptians. We will all be your slaves, Judah says. But then Joseph says, oh no, I wouldn't do that to you. I'll just enslave the one in whose hand was found the cup. The rest of you go up to your father in peace. And with that, Joseph just laid down the final exam. He just walked up to the student's desk and laid down the final exam. Here it is. You may all go except the favorite son of your father. Will they leave Benjamin behind? Will they abandon their brother? Wouldn't it be better for, for their father to have ten living sons than, than to lose all of them? Wouldn't it be better for their wives and children to have ten of husbands and fathers home than to lose all of them? This is really the perfect test, isn't it? You notice how things have been arranged exactly as they were 22 years earlier when it was Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, who was sent out to the sons with their sheep out in the field to see how they were doing. And they hated Joseph because he was the father's favorite. Remember, Joseph had two wives and two concubines and had these, these 12 sons from the four women. But of one woman, the favorite wife, Rachel, he only had two sons, Joseph and then years later, Benjamin. And on that day, the brothers grabbed Joseph and were thought to kill him. Then they decided better of it and sold him into slavery. And now it's all on the table again. Only it's not Joseph, he's gone. But it's Benjamin. It's the new favorite son of Father Jacob. And what will they do? Will they leave him behind? Will they sell him out for their own lives? Earlier they told Joseph, they said, we are not spies, we're honest men. And so Joseph been probing that. Are you honest men? Are you honest men? We'll see if you're honest men. And he's probing them to determine if they're new men now and also to, to move them, to change them. And now before them is Benjamin with his head on the chopping block. And what will they do? Will they do what our flesh loves to do and say, yeah, it's not my problem, I'm out of here. You know, even this time they have more to gain, don't they, actually? Because leaving Benjamin behind, then they'd be done all together with the sons of Rachel. And we could be done at last with these favorite sons. And we could quit hearing about the favorites of our father. And we would know they're not going to get the inheritance. We'll get the inheritance. And doesn't Father Jacob deserve this after all? All these years and he's still choosing favorites in the home. Unjust partiality. So here's the test. Now at this point in reading Genesis, you might begin to say to yourself, how much longer is this going to go on for? These tests, these, these, these trials, how much longer? Why doesn't Joseph stop? He already overheard them talking about their guilt and what they did to Joseph. That already happened earlier. How much further does he have to press this? But of course it's not Joseph who's in control here, is it? It's the sovereign Lord of the covenant. It's God who's in control. Joseph is just the instrument God is using to put the brothers to the test. And God's doing this because something very critical is at stake. And that critical thing is revealed in that passage we read from 1 John chapter 3, a little earlier in our service. 
When 1 John 3 verse 10 says, by this it is evident, by this you can see who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The, God, the, uh, the epistle of 1 John you know, has all these tests in it. And this is one of the tests to see who's child of God and who's child of devil. And, and that language takes you all the way back to Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve had gone over the devil's side and God brought them back to his side and he put a line down and he, he put hostility between the serpent and the woman, between Satan's children and the woman's children. And God said there's going to develop in history two lines, children of the devil, children of God. And now John says you can actually tell who's who by this, do they love their brothers? Or are they of children of Satan? Now here you've got the chosen family, Jacob's family. This is the one family on the face of the earth that God has selected to whom he's going to reveal salvation and through whom he's going to bring salvation because the Christ, the Messiah, will be born through this family. But is this family on track? Reuben stole one of his father's wives, or at least lay with her. Simon and Levi mercilessly massacred a whole town of men in vengeance. Judah was the one who suggested to his brothers that they sell Joseph into slavery. All of the brothers but Benjamin plotted together to kill Joseph. And this is the church. This is the future of the world. This is where the Messiah will come from. 1 John 3 goes on to say, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain was offspring of Satan. He murdered his brother. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, these brothers are murderers. They didn't actually pull the trigger, but they virtually killed him by selling him into slavery. And if this chosen family goes the way of Cain now, who is of the devil, then what's left on the earth? Where's the church? Where's the hope of the world? From where will the Messiah come? How will God keep his promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed? You see the issue? You see why God's working the test here? You see why God can't let it go? You see why his love is stubborn and persistent? Because everything's on the line. And it still is today, isn't it? The issue remains critical for us. If we will not love one another, what future is there for the church? If we will not love one another, then what witness to the gospel is there upon the earth? God is not content to let us go either. Which is why maybe even this morning God would put his finger upon our heart and remind us about those words we spoke that we need to go 
and apologize for and ask for forgiveness. Or that offense, even years ago, that we haven't dealt with properly. Those words we spoke to our father and mother that we have not repented of. Or maybe we're saying to ourselves this morning that somebody offended me. He did me the wrong, and I'm waiting for him to come and see me. Despite the crystal clear instruction of Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Remember, maybe we're saying to ourselves, well, well, no one has offended me. I'm not upset with anyone. But we know our brother's offended with us. And Matthew 5 speaks to that. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. These are the demands of love. This is what it means to love your brother. We are naturally inclined towards selfishness and towards conceit and pride and bitterness. But the Lord of the covenant doesn't let go of his people. He doesn't walk away. We are the chosen of the Lord. The church of Christ is the elect of God upon the earth. And God won't let go. And you say, why does my conscience keep accusing me? Why does it keep coming up? And the answer is here. Because the Lord will be glorified among his people. And he will have a holy people for himself. So he persists in his stubborn love. He pokes and he prods and he presses and he humbles. And he puts this family in the pressure cooker and he turns it up and he turns it up and he turns it up. That he might remake them. And aren't we thankful this morning that God won't stop working on us? Are we willing to humble ourselves and say, where, Lord? Where would you have me to see my sin? Now, Satan will tell you, quit thinking about it. It's too big of a mess. You don't want to go that low. It's too difficult. You can't do that. You know you're too proud. But notice, secondly, this morning, not just this loving persistence of the Lord, but the transforming power of the Lord. Notice that, secondly, this morning, Judah emerges here as a changed man. As Joseph gives all the brothers but Benjamin an open door to go home, go away in peace, take the grain, head on off. Remarkably, they don't take the exit, do they? Judah steps forward with what turns out to be the longest speech in the book of Genesis. I didn't go back and check all that out, but I read that somewhere. I think it's true. certainly is a very lengthy speech, but that's remarkable, right? The longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. And he begins by explaining the whole situation. You know, we came down here, we told you we had another brother, but he is very precious to the father. You insisted we had to bring him back. We went home and told our father, we need to bring down your youngest son and the father. He couldn't do that. Finally, he let us do that, but He's going to die if we come home without him. And Judah says, I, I offered myself surety for him. I guaranteed that we'd bring him back or I would bear the blame. Now, Judah offers here a very lengthy and a very passionate and a very moving speech. 
And it's really a glorious reverse of what happened 20 years before. When this same man Judah had suggested they sell Joseph off, and this same man Judah with his brothers brought home the coat of many colors with that goat's blood they put on it, And at that point, they didn't tear their clothes, but only Father Jacob tore his clothes. And they watched their father grieve for his loss of his favorite son, Joseph, and they were apparently unmoved. They let their father believe that he was dead, and they did not console him. They let their father believe this for two decades. And now it's quite a different thing, isn't it? This Judah who had heard the pleading of Joseph when they were selling him away and had not the least compassion is now intervening here. And it's remarkable that his heart is filled with compassion for his father now. Something like 14 times he speaks of his father. Like it's four times over he says his father's going to die if they don't have Benjamin with him. Judas pleading and pleading. But then the height of wonder comes at the very end, doesn't it? When Judas says in those closing verses of the chapter, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead, in the stead of the lad, as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Judah here offers himself in the place of Benjamin as his willing substitute. One author puts it like this, Joseph now knows that the brother who sold him into slavery has become a brother willing to assume slavery rather than cause the death of his father. Once an enemy, Judah has now become a true brother. It's amazing, isn't it? But Judah would rather lose his own life now than to grieve his father. He would rather give up his life than to have Benjamin suffer here the consequence. He's willing to sacrifice himself. Now, this is a, a glorious transformation when you think of who this is, who this man Judah is. Judah, again, the one who, who thought up the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. Judah, who we saw in chapter 38, left the covenant community. He left his family, which was the church, to go live among the Canaanites, married an unbelieving woman taught his sons to do likewise, watched God kill two of his sons for their disobedience, mistreated his daughter-in-law Tamar, visited a harlot without remorse. And now something astonishing has taken place. God is gloriously remade the heart of Judah, it seems. And our God is in the business of this, right? Of, Of remaking lives, of transforming lives. God gets to the bottom of it. I remember years ago seeing on TV something about these, I don't know, life makeover shows or whatever it was, but I can't say that I remember really watching many, but I I remember vaguely the idea somewhere along the line of a woman coming in looking a bit frumpy and then she taking off stage and gets a new hairdo and some new makeup, some new clothes and bring her on stage. Wow, she's a new woman. Well, not really. If she doesn't know how to do her hair, probably look like the same woman tomorrow, but At least for the moment, for the camera, she looks great. Now, our Lord's not into superficial life makeovers, is he? He's not into what's surface level or artificial. Our Father's a surgeon who cuts to the heart. 
who pushes the knife all the way in. Who but the Lord can make or remake Judah like this? This transformation is of the Lord, who is steadily on the way towards the incarnation. Christ is remaking us. And Christ tells us that it's not the outward beauty that matters so much, is it? But it's the inward beauty. And 1 John 3 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The self-sacrifice is not optional, but required. That we'd be willing, right, to give our life for our brothers, our sisters, And yet we don't too often have the necessity of the extreme martyrdom, do we? But what does giving up one's life in the ordinary look like? Is it to take the time before we eat our supper when the food's on the table and we're hungry to pray for a brother or sister? Or to take the time after the supper, when we're ready to go now, or we're sleepy, or we want to get on with the evening, to remember those in need in prayer. God works that in us. Is it the willingness to gather with each other? Hospitality takes a lot of work and self-sacrifice, but, but we're learning all the more that accepting hospitality takes time and sacrifice because now we have endless entertainment at home. Who needs to go out? Who needs people? We've got YouTube. We've got live streaming. No, I think I'm busy. Thank you anyway. But the Lord works in his people, a longing and a hunger to be together. Even worship services are understood now not as only, though they are primarily coming together because we love God, but we also gather worship because we love each other. And we say, I'm willing to die to myself. I will be there because you're there. And I want to know you. And I want to know what's going on in your life. And I want to encourage you and be encouraged by you. What about serving in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's always easier to say no. No, no thanks. I don't want to serve there. No thanks. But what about saying yes? Doesn't the Lord work that in us that we say, I want to give my life for others. I want to give my time. And we can ask about relationships where there are wounds and hurts. Isn't it the Spirit of Christ who leads us to seek reconciliation? I've had people say to me in my lifetime in the ministry, things like, well, yeah, but, you know, me and him, we we don't get along. There was that thing that happened, you know, years ago. Yeah, we, me and her, we... We don't, we don't serve together on committees because, you know, there was this thing that happened. Oh, really? Does the, does the Bible say anything about that thing? I wouldn't be so naive as to suggest that all things are easily worked out. I know things can be complicated, can't they? And I know that maybe the other party is not equally willing But I have noticed in my life and the life of others that things are especially complicated and confusing 
when we are not ready to yield to the word of God. Oh, it's so confusing. It's so complicated. Going on vacation next week, right? Yeah, we're leaving at 9.53. From here, we got this flight. We're going, that's very clear. Very clear. But the relationship, oh, that's very confusing. Well, maybe the clarity we need is a heart that yields to the Lord. A heart that's willing to yield to the Lord. A heart that's transformed by the power of the Lord. And what about in our homes? What about the covenant community in our house, the Christian family? Boys and girls, do you love your father? Do you love your mother? Is it clear in the way you speak, in the way you're willing to be helpful? Husbands, do you love your wives? Really, to lay down your life daily for them. Wives, do you love your husbands and honor them? I heard one preacher say that the mark of true repentance that he often notices in young people is that the relationship with their parents changes. Yeah, we could understand why. What a glorious thing that our lives so naturally consumed with self-interest are turned now, are turned, moved to repentance and renewal. How much more Christ does in us. And what a comfort there is here, right? As we look at our lives and think, I can't do this. I don't know if I can go through with that. But the power is in the Lord Jesus. And what a comfort for parents here as they, as they pray for children. And they think at times, you know, there's bickering or there's strife in the home or there's self-interest. And we can't do anything about this. But to turn to the story and say, look at what the Lord of the covenant does. He changes people. He does marvelous things. What a challenge for all of us here. But finally, what a picture of our Savior. Let's look, not just this morning, at God's loving persistence and the Lord's transforming power, but at the Lord's chosen pathway. The Lord's chosen pathway. In the end, what we have here is a picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus, don't we? And Judah's self-sacrifice, me in his place, me in his stead, me instead of him, I will be the slave. We have the coming Christ already speaking, don't we? And revealing to us the path that he will take, only far more glorious than Judah, right? Far more glorious than Judah. Because he's not just a human, he's the eternal son of God. Because he's not guilty as Judah is, who knows he deserves this. He's the innocent and holy one. He comes from the heights of glory. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. He's worshipped by the glorious beings above, and he gives it all up to come down, doesn't he? And he comes down, this son of God, not to just simply know us and offer advice, but he comes down to be the substitute and to say of us, the sinners, not them but me, me in their place. They deserve the cross. Let me hang on the cross. They deserve God's wrath. Let me bear God's wrath in their place. So willingly he comes. He who is true God empties himself by becoming a servant to die for the misfits like us. Now, even something more of the glory of this is seen in what Judah says. Because isn't it remarkable 
that Judah here, that Judah says to Joseph, the man, he says, look, I need to take his place because otherwise my father will die. He talks over and over of his father's favoritism of Benjamin. Before that favoritism was the thing that in his mind justified the murder of Joseph. But now that favoritism becomes the ground and the reason he's willing to give himself up. Before he hated his father for his favoritism, now he has compassion on his father for his favoritism. My father will die without Benjamin. You see, Judah's not giving his life because his father deserves it. And that is an outline of the coming of Jesus, doesn't it? Who gives his life not because we deserve it. But while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Precisely because we didn't deserve God. Precisely because we had no way to God. Precisely because we were desperately in need. Jesus gave his life for us. Wherever Christ is at work in his church, whether Old Testament or New Testament, we get a glimpse of the Savior. As people begin to take on his characters, people begin to look like him. That at the root of us naturally is self-service and self-love. Our three favorite people are naturally me, myself, and I. But as this Christ who takes this pathway to rescue us comes to live in us, then we change. And we are able to say, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And as we take hold of this Savior as our substitute, who restores us to fellowship with God by his death on the cross, then he also remakes us to be a new people. And we should be greatly encouraged by that. And we should rejoice in that. And that makes us want to speak in new ways, and holy ways. I should say, I'm sorry about the joke about hair. For all of us who have frumpy hair like me, you know, no offense to any frumpy heads if you feel that way about yourself. But we want to be careful how we speak. And we should rely upon the power of the Lord Jesus. I'm not sure we fully appreciate how great is that power. Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The power able to do all beyond we can ask or think is the power at work within us to the glory of Christ in his church. People of God, if this glorious power could remake the sons of Jacob and remake this Judah back there, now that Christ has died, risen, ascended, and poured out his spirit, can we expect less? Can we expect less? No, let's pray. Let's pray in faith. Let's be responsive and receptive to that convicting spirit. Let's put right what we have done wrong. Let's go to the one who's offended and ask how we can be reconciled. Let's lay down our lives for each other and say, let the glory of Christ shine here. And above all, let's give thanks to the one who has made this all a reality, the Son of God in human flesh, who died for the sins of his people.
our glorious substitute. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we lift up our hearts to you. We thank you that you are a God full of mercy and a God of grace. We praise you for the works that you perform from of old and new every day. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his living power in us. Well, God, we pray that as you convict us of our sin, that we will be responsive to you and that we will please you. We pray, Father, that we'll learn more and more the pathway of our Savior, that we, embracing his life for our life, would learn to lay down our lives all the more. Glorify yourself in this way, for Jesus' sake. Amen.